Welcome to Packer Pushes, the greatest ever data networking podcast in the entire world. At least, that's what I think. Uh, today, I'm still at the Intel event, and I'm chopping into a new topic, and I wanted to record it slightly separately from the others. Joining me today is Kelsey Hightower. Kelsey, say hello to the audience. Hey, Hel- Kelsey here. <laughs> and Keith? How's it going? Yeah, so if you listen to the last show, hopefully that one was published before this one, and you'll be able to get find out more about them. So one of the topics that we started talking about today while Intel was um, giving us all of their uh, magic fairy dust about how great the data center of the future is going to be and the software-defined infrastructure, and we were you know, getting really deep into things like storage and how networking and NFE and SDN... Kelsey, you've been working a lot on containers and you were sort of going, oh, you know, this is going to be great. You know, and I was going like, dude, this is so far away from what enterprise engineers actually understand is they're just not going to be able to do this. And the bulk of them don't even have the core fundamental skills to be able to handle this. So the hypothesis that we're working on this show is that a lot of people get training in their life in the same way that if you're like a you know, you go at 18 and you go and or whatever your local legal age limit is and you go and get a learner's permit and then we teach you how to drive. So you can drive a car, you can get the job done, you can go from place to place, but how much do you actually know about your car? Do you know how to change a tire? And, you know, there's a lot of young people in the world today who actually do not know how to change a tire in a car. You know how an engine works? Do you know how a gearbox works? What about a floating differential? Do you know how variable gear ratio? What about an automatic gearbox, which, you know, uses a fluid mechanism to exchange power down the drivetrain? People who drive cars don't understand those things. They can use the car, they can get a result, they can get from A to B, deliver business value, even if you will, but they don't have any competency on how to run the car. So there's my preposition, and I did a blog post on this recently, is there's one thing about training, I can teach you to operate, I can teach you to execute something, but you need teaching to understand fundamentals. And one of the problems that enterprise IT has got, and here's the, here's the hypothesis, is that very few people in IT infrastructure actually have computer science degrees or take the time to learn the fundamentals of computer science. What are your thoughts? So I don't have a computer science degree, and the last two years I've been so deep in, compu- in distributed systems, reading papers from Lamport, reading the Mesos paper, the Borg paper, um, implementing RAF algorithms. So I think it's so, my curiosity there is that we're not a group that I would think has, is, are incapable of learning. Mm-hmm. Like part of our job is to learn these things so we can manage them well. But I also think, I hope that we're part of the, like the self-selected group of people that like to tinker with these things to understand how they work. So for me, um, I do see this in, you know, in my peers sometimes where people just want to pull the levers. Mm-hmm. And if there's no lever to pull, everything just stops and they get on the phone to call the vendor. Yep. For me personally, I see things differently. You know, there's things you do at the job, mm-hmm. but when I get home, I have this appetite for learning how things work and why or they work. why they work. Why they work. Why, I need to know why. So I think today um, we, were, we were talking about networking and how the, or storage, and how yeah. storage was virtualized. Yeah. And I was like, whoa, 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 I can't, what does virtualized storage even mean? I need to know. <laughs> I, don't th- I don't think anybody's ever used the word storage virtualization for a while. I right, so I'm like, well, no, no, I need to know what is the concrete implementation of that thing, because mm. that's unacceptable to leave it high level at that point. Right. And so I've been just that type of person, so I really don't, um, so I think we're going to talk more in detail about yeah. how do people leave it at the high level. Okay, so Keith, now you've been working as a management consultant and now you work as a, an architect for a large company. What do you, th- you know, your principle, you agree with my statement there? Yeah, so, you know, I, I thought I was an engineer for a long time and then I went and worked for Lockheed Martin and I learned that I needed to relearn exactly what it means to be an engineer. What does it mean to, uh, to design, to collect requirements and design the system, and what a system design actually looks like. And that stuff just, you, you don't, if you don't have a computer science degree and you haven't had an appetite for picking it up on your own, 
that stuff just isn't taught in a traditional enterprise. No. And, and this is my point, is a lot of people go to training, and we go and send them to training on vendor A, vendor B, Cisco, VMware, EMC, you know, Oracle. But what we don't teach them is, what's the fundamentals of database design or architecture? What's the fundamentals of TCP IP? Now, there are some advanced certifications or training programs where you'll end up in, you know, you'll bring that on board as part of what they're trying to teach you in that curriculum. But there's two things. One is, how many people in the enterprise are actually incentivated to go and learn the fundamentals. When we, we live in an enterprise where they're actually punished for change. And what's more, the enterprise then um, backs off its risk and backs off its responsibility to the vendors by buying, saying, I only want to buy from trusted vendor or respected vendor with you know, very large price tag. In fact, the bigger the price, the more I trust the vendor. So I'm exaggerating slightly, but that's kind of the perspective. So there's actually no... Um, incentive there for people to get up and start thinking about how is a storage array designed? How is, you know, what are the fundamentals of switching fabrics inside of switch, you know, that type of thing. So one thing I can, I can, I think one of the things is probably the pay disparity. Mm. So I've, I've managed teams so you can kind of see the spectrum of pay. And on average, when I look at this, most people that are elite performers that take the time to learn exactly the protocols they're switching gear supports you know, deciding intelligently when do you enable things like jumble frames or not. The pay difference between that person and just a person that just turns knobs, mm -hmm. sometimes is like 10%. And yeah, when you look at that. that, yeah, if that. And when you look at that number, you're saying, dude, you can keep the 10%. I'm going home at four o'clock every single day. While and I'm going to pick up eight. a bag of Doritos and put Netflix on the television. Right, and... so I, I think I agree totally is that there's, there's just no incentive. Even, it's just too small for people to even care at that level. Unless you've got a hunger for knowledge. It's right. Like some, of, some people have that, and perhaps us have that hunger to say, I want to go and read the white papers, like you said. So, Greg, I'm actually, you're, you're an old school networking guy, I think. Do I functionally need to know, to do my job mm -hmm. as an enterprise, let's say, network engineer or architect, do I need to be able to argue the values of IPX, SPX over TCP, IP, and UDP? What, I mean, at the end of the day, so what? You know, vendor X, you know, at the end of the day, I'm delivering business value. Is there... So I would say yes. And the reason being is that you can't determine... You, you have to be looking at what, how can you evaluate competing solutions or competing products or technology trends or technology transitions? How can you comprehend those if you don't understand the, the landscape? So that means that even though you're using EMC for your storage array, you need to be well aware of what's happening with EMC or the 7,500 other flash startups and what they bring. And, and then all of a sudden you've got, you know, let's just run with storage startups. All of a sudden now you have storage startups that actually aren't building storage arrays. They're building metadata models on top of the storage that's stored there, on top of the data that's stored. So if you store a Word file, it's now bringing out metadata around, well, what's the value of that? Well, hang on, instead of actually just searching through a, you know, a file manager and searching for a file. You've got metadata saying this is a Word document. It's got these keywords in it. It was restored by this person. And now you can start to search on the metadata, not on the file itself. So you don't have to then create indexes. The storage array is doing it. In networking, same sort of thing. We're seeing the transition from legacy networking where everything was banged at the CLI. And it was a bit like 
using the CLI for a lot of people was I have a default set of complicate. I pull the lever, put my foot on the accelerator and a car goes forward. I put my foot on the brake, the car stops. I've got no idea what a brake is and I don't actually know why it accelerates. I just know that it does. And that's how a lot of people build their networks today. They don't have. And so when SDN comes along, they react with fear or this is an insurmountable challenge. They've got no grounds on which to understand or to comprehend how SDN will make things better for the business. So if you're an architect, you need to be compass mentis in all of these things so that you can go out and say, SDN is this. Communication skills, you've got to have that too, but you've got to have the technology fundamentals to say, actually, SDN is the same as it's always been. All we're doing is changing it, the configuration process to use automation and orchestration tools. We're going to do that via APIs. Now, does that mean you might have to learn some programming? Sure. You need to learn a bit of programming to understand that programming instead of CLI, it does this. It uses software. Does that mean you need to be a Python developer all of a sudden? Some people, yeah. But for most people, I don't think you ever will. You'll just need to be familiar enough with scripting and programming and development processes so that you can bring that to the table and say, SDN, I could do Python, but actually, you know what I want? I want to go and buy an orchestration tool. I want to go and get PlumGrid or New Arch Networks or you know whatever it is to orchestrate my network configuration. And I, and I think to cope with that too, like if you, let's say you're only three years into your career and you come onto a team as a junior network admin, I would hope you have tons of questions, and I hope the environment that you step into, or the person you're going to report to, your team lead, will just make sure that you will get the mentorship, whether you ask the questions or not. Mm. And make sure that, look, if you're going to come through my shop and say that you were a network admin, the next shop you go to, you will be a much better network admin than when you started here. And if, the, if we were to doing that over the in number of years, I think we would have a lot of people, when they mm. do move around, they can bring expertise to these shops that are missing that mentorship. Yeah. I've never really had mentorship in any of my early parts of my career. You just go there, they just expect you to do the job. And you never get leveled up there, maybe because there's this fear that if I level you up too fast, you'll just go leave for more money. Well, there was, I've got a theory about that, right? If you work in an enterprise IT, say from 1999 through to about 2012, nothing changed. No, we fundamentally, yeah. you know, like I was still deploying in 2012, I was still deploying spanning tree, tree structured, blah, 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 gigabit here, get the forget the photocopier out, deliver the same fundamental design that I was doing back in 2002. Nothing changed, really. Storage, applications, VMware came along, but all it did was connect to the network in exactly the same way. Mm -hmm. here's, a, here's a trunked interface, connect to the VLANs. That was about the limit of it. You know, there was no cycle of live die type thing technology didn't die they just got slightly better and when i say slightly i mean you know a little bit faster not a lot faster because too much faster would just take away the profits that the big companies were taking out of our pockets so i i think yeah that was true but i think now as we go through these transitions sdn for and nfv in the networking stack in the containers and what's happening with virtualization in the service, like this fast instantiation, fast destruction model, or even with VMs, you know, cloud directly, orchestration tools that create VMs automatically and monitor them automatically, and analytics being at there so we can see, you know, this is all new from the ground up. I see, I see, even in the old world, if I were to bring in a junior person, hmm. I would say, I want one of your first tasks is find out what is the actual limitation of our network. Yep. How fast could we actually push packets? Hmm. And what could we change? to make that faster. And 
just because it's a fresh pair of eyes, it takes some time to ramp up. Yeah. But to me, that is an extreme mentoring opportunity, even when there is no change. From a functional perspective, so we, you know, we spent a little bit of time on a junior engineer. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the mid-level guy, the guy with the CCNP, the mid-level virtualization certification. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we had this concept of paper MCSEs in the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. These guys, you know, I, I was one of those guys at the time, didn't feel like I was a paper MCSE. I was doing real work. Mm. I understood how to use Microsoft systems, design Microsoft systems. How do I know, because chances are I'm the top dog within mm. my department. How do I know that I'm just, you know, uh, that I'm at a surface level of knowledge versus having this deep level of knowledge? What's some of the functional things like, you know, how do I, what's the f limitations of the network? Yeah, what are some of the functional things that well, I, that I, so I would two need things to know? There. One is that wisdom that clever is you know everything that you know. Wisdom is that you know there's a lot of things you don't know. You go through a cycle in your career and sort of as you're maturing, and this is where mentoring is very important. One of the reasons I started blogging and podcasting was there were people who mentored me and told me not to be such an idiot and to grow up and start thinking about the bigger picture. And if you haven't got that, you may actually develop a system of self-belief where you think you're the smartest person in the room. And, you know, then they didn't get into that saying is if you're the smartest person in the room, it's time to leave the room and find one where you're not because then you'll learn something, right? And I think a lot of enterprise IT shops have actually been very isolated and once you got something running and you didn't actually mix. So I think for 20 years there, we didn't actually have... The internet sort of, we didn't have social media, so you couldn't see conversations. Blogging wasn't popular. So how did you get fresh ideas? And then we've seen in the last five years, social media allows you to discover blogs instead of big media sites that are sort of very sanitized and very safe because the media doesn't want to upset the vendors and, you know, because there's financial arrangements where the vendors pay and so forth. You know, I think there's been a real revolution there where the people who work in enterprise IT shops can get access to more information than ever before. Look at those research papers that you talked about. Can you imagine finding those? Like I can tell you when I was studying for my certifications back in the late 90s, you couldn't get those research papers. Mm -hmm. They were in some library that only universities had subscriptions to, whereas now Google publishes them on their website and, and you know, people tweet about them all the time or publish these. I mean, I have a page on Packet Pushers where I list every clever piece of research I come across and we're just trying to maintain that as a big list of research that you could refer to if that was, that, that was never possible. I also think uh, people are starting to search outside of their walls too, right? Like, you know, you would join a big company, especially if you had like 50,000 employees. I think a lot of people thought that all of the information they needed were within those walls or a vendor phone call away. And to me, I think to find out that, you know what, I'm probably not that smart, you start going to meetups, like legit meetups if you can find one, and you watch someone present something like just really deep on the thing you're supposed to know well. And you start to actually have the courage to ask questions huh. and, and put, you got to make yourself vulnerable. A lot of people go to meetups and they just sit there and they stay quiet mm. and because they're afraid of showing their vulnerability. And I think what you have to do is be comfortable asking questions, exposing yourself, say, look, here's how I think I understand this particular thing and, and just let the knowledge come in. I think we don't here's do that enough. Here's the secret about asking questions. The presenter wants you to. Right. I want people to ask me questions because at least then I'm getting through. I'm provoking mm -hmm. something and, uh, and all of a sudden the effort I put into those presentations is worthwhile. Second, there's other people in the room who want to ask questions but can't. I, I know that there are a lot of enterprises who actually don't allow people to identify as being from those enterprises, so they're reluctant. So sometimes asking questions, you're actually representing people in the room. Try to be smart about asking questions. Think hard about what you're asking and whether it, 
you're asking too many questions or you're being an ass because that happens. There's always someone. Yes, yeah, so I, I lean on the community hard. I, I know that there are other people doing the exact same thing. There's other people that have moved on to something new. And I just challenge myself to actually know who they are. Mm-hmm. So I don't necessarily want to go to, I guess, the big vendor conference anymore. I don't want to go to any of those too much because that doesn't really serve what I'm looking for. I'm looking for the 600-person conference where when you look at the people that are attending, these are the people that really want to get down and dirty and not have to water it down too mm-hmm. much because it's a self-selected group. And I, I try to mix that into my community, and that helps you kind of really surface. Like, ooh, I knew nothing about <laughs> unicorns before this one. <laughs> now I got something to go now look I got at. Now something to go look yeah. at. But now the internet's there. You can go and find papers Correct. and blog posts talking about unicorns, and, and not just one, but dozens of points of view for all of which you should consider instead of just some vendor shoving you a white paper that gives you their point of view. And we're in a GitHub era, which is totally crazy because now it's not just white paper. It's like GitHub project you download with mm. a readme that lets you throw it up and mm-hmm. actually kick the tires on it. Yeah, after uh, doing one of the sessions, doing the Intel event, I literally made a note in my uh, little notepad that says, read more GitHub. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, literally. Like, I, I scan for the, a lot of those new projects, yeah. and it's amazing what's coming out. One of the things that bothers me a lot is that um, there are still some some of the like the legacy vendors, you know, the vendors who've been around for 10, 20 years, and their idea of open is to put it on their website behind a registration wall. Uh, if you're a customer with a signed up account, right, and then they go, oh, but our APIs are open and you can get to them, and I'm going like, so you have to have bought their product, and then you have to have a login, and then you have to be authorized to get access to it. That's not open. That's like a closed bottle of beer. I know exactly why this happens. Yeah. I, actually, I actually talked to some companies about mm. advocacy. So one thing I like to do is I like to be very technical, but I also like to advocate for both things, like the technology adoption mm. and the users seeking to adopt the technology. Mm. And most people always ask me, how do you measure advocacy? So one way would be to put a paywall up and make sure we register everyone, and you never capture the people that leave in many cases. Yes. And I think the fact that people are, are trying to take away the human element of advocacy. Yeah. The goal is for me to go and explain these well, things the, well the, and the listen. With, the problem with numbers from advocacy comes around this Marcoms thing where 10 years ago, you went and negotiated with a big media company, and you said, I want to generate 300 leads and they would charge you a price per lead, mm. okay? And so you want to be able to count that, and then you want to be able to count whether the lead was successful, and if it turned into a sale, how much was... So if I spent this much money in marketing, I generated this much money in sales. But for advocacy or customer outreach in the internet era, that is a complete... Like, I won't sign up. I will not hit a registration wall. And if I do, I'm going to give you some idiot, you know, Donald Duck at Duckville... I do worse than that. I, I use my CTO advisor email address and yeah. say that I have like 10,000 customers, I mean yeah. t- 10,000 employees. And when they do call me, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm just some guy with a blog. So one thing I want to do is bring it back. So we're talking about, so one thing we also talked about earlier was the impact yes. of this attitude from a lot of people that are considering themselves IT professionals. Mm and the impact that they have on the actual financials in many cases, right? When a project takes 100 people that may be complacent and you give them a very hard problem and they look at it and say, six years, we can do that. And then you end up having to spend the same money or or maybe even double to bring bring in outside experts to actually do the job. To bolster the team. That's a huge cost on the organization multiplied by n number of times depending on your size. And then false incentives, right? Because if if you work for these companies, I've worked for plenty of them, if you change something and it blows up, you get punished, whether it's 
criticism, you know, worse, people get sacked because they made an error, you know, rough stories about people getting sacked because they made an unsanctioned change or whatever. And so where's the incentive to actually bother learning the new stuff? Because if you do, and then you can't implement it, you get this sort of thwarted intent. You know, I spent all this time learning this really cool stuff and now I can't do anything with it. Why did I bother to learn this new stuff? I'm being punished for... Or if you automate yourself out of a job. You know, there's, I've seen that fear yeah. that, you know, if I do such a great job, my job won't be, my function that I do today won't be needed. And, you know, I have a philosophy for, philosophy for that. That's my job yeah. is to make sure that I'm no longer needed and I'm going to continue to go higher up the stack. If I can't but be not replaced, everyone, I yeah. can't be promoted. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and i also seen the thing is depending on what level you are when you, when you start to seek to do these actions, right? I can remember invoking change as, I guess, a line engineer. Mm. And you spend the majority of your time convincing a lot of people that this is going to be safe, right? It could be a month, it could be six months worth of meetings and checkpoints before you would even dare make this small change. Yep. And the higher you go up, if you have the right title, things move a bit quicker, right? It's mm. like, well, you're high enough to kind of be responsible for this yeah. and we fire you. That, <laughs> that sends a good message across the organization that, yeah. you know, we will even fire you know, someone. Yeah, on the, the only message it sends is that change is bad, so don't change. It's <laughs> right. like everybody stops changing. Yeah. You know, it's like, which is crazy because uh, everything else changes. Sales change, products change, companies change, people change, but IT never does apparently. And we put a lot of processes in to control change when, and this is all uh, fundamentally where DevOps comes in as it says change is inevitable, so make it core to what you do. Make change automated, fast, acceptable, risk-free, and use tools to you know, do it. So the last thing I want to ask about it too is I have this theory that, and I talk to a lot of my colleagues, and I say, look, if, if this whole outsourcing movement, we call it moving to the cloud, but I yeah. don't think it's necessarily moving to the big three. Mm-hmm. It's this idea that someone else will take over yep. that has an incentive to do things at an excellence level that you don't. Yes. How much, how much of that is the reason why things like OpenStack, all these initiatives around private cloud, right? Mm-hmm. We're going to do the same things that the big vendors do or, mm-hmm. or Amazon does, and they fail to do it. How much of it, of this complacency attitude is pushing people to accelerate that adoption of what we call the public cloud? Uh, well, I think it's a big one. I think that that, you know, you move to the cloud and they're going to take away all my problems. Of course, all it did was generate a whole bunch of new problems like exactly the same problems, now they're just in the cloud. And in some cases, the cloud makes them worse. So if you're not counting your VMs and you move into the cloud and all of a sudden you've got twice as many VMs and so your cost is twice as high and you've got no way of controlling or containing or even monitoring that cost because you haven't thought about how cloud changes. So for example, uh, Amazon Cloud, every megabyte that leaves costs you money. So you might never have thought about that before because you might be buying MPLS circuits, you've got one gig lines, it's up to you to use the bandwidth. It doesn't matter how much data goes out of there, it doesn't cost you any more or cost you any less. Well, if all of a sudden you go into AWS and you're burning that cost and you're not watching it, you might get a bill for a phenomenal amount that you don't know about. It doesn't fix the problems, it can make them worse. Yeah, I've noticed that too. A lot of people, when they talk about the failure of a cloud migration, Mm. and a lot of times you look at it, it's the same people that (laughs) destroyed the the internal (laughs) IT project, (laughs) and you gave them like the, the automated bug to do it like <laughs> 10 times faster. Like I want you guys to now learn your lesson all of a sudden. We're not going to change any people. Yeah. We're not going to have a retrospective about what happened to our, <laughs> our current data centers. Yes. And I'm going to give you a credit card that's on file. Yeah. Well, I, I, became, <laughs> I, I, I became Facebook. I fail, I fail fast, man. I fail yeah, fast. Fail fast. That's one thing. Uh, the second thing about the cloud is that it does give you a chance to transform. 
So it does give you a chance to say, let's try something different. Let's have permitted change. Let's drive a change. And that gives people a chance to kick themselves into life, like so to reignite the passion to move on. And suddenly you're on a, you know, and if you've been standing still for 15 years, like since the early 2000s when everything sort of froze dead, you know, and like no innovation that happened in the last 15 years is my fundamental premise. Then all of a sudden you're in the cloud, you've got permission to, you know, go, to get out there and start writing code to do AWS against its APIs or Rackspace or DigitalOcean or Google or whoever the hell it is, it doesn't really matter, and start thinking again about what it, why is it that you're doing it. It's that transformation sometimes that can restart your business process, and you would have seen that. Yeah, and a lot of times it's great is uh, to go out, and we talk about mentorship, we talk about get, going out and getting help. Sometimes if you're in a position to go out and get help from a consultant, bringing in these views from the external can help kickstart this change and, and, mm. and, and be the catalyst that you need to kind of kick, uh, mm. whether it's the management team or the engineers in the butt, because sometimes it just, you know, it's like one of those things I tell my kid that they need to study, and when some sports star comes in and tell them they need to study, like, oh my goodness, I need to study. It's, it's, the, <laughs> it's the same kind of, duh, it's the same concept. So one thing I predict is that like we saw software go open source and a community gravitate to actually provide really, like, really strong solutions, mm. I'm starting to see this a little bit on the services side. Mm. So normally services was a, a product of like consulting, you pay the you pay the bill rate, they it come in. It was the worst thing you could, it was the last resort. Right, you but, only brought in a consultant when you really didn't right. have the expertise. But I'm seeing a community element happen where Facebook engineers go visit some startup and share like consultant level details yeah. of how to implement things like Cassandra. And you start having some of the vendors where their employees are a little bit free, maybe they don't even have a consultancy yeah. business, they don't even have a line item for ProServe. And they go and just do a whiteboard session at a NASA or a JPL. And what you're starting to see is that this knowledge becomes something people can actually afford to have. Like, how much will it really cost to get a senior person that knows what they're doing to do a day or two of whiteboard session on site? Oh, at, if you're thinking about one of the big four consultancies, you're talking 4,000 US dollars a day? Exactly, so for yeah. now, like, then that would be a thing that makes you push away, but now having these relationships deep into the people that are now writing these open source projects, they're like, mm. sure, you want to yeah. use my well, project? So I'm here's on my the thing way. for you, I remember buying um, coding environments, like programming platforms, you know, C Sharp and Plural and stuff and buying tools. And I remember being in a team that was spending a half a million or a million dollars on licenses for development environments. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. Well, now you're getting it for free. So now you want to think about a half a million dollars in bringing in a bunch of OpenStack experts to teach you stuff. So that you learn how OpenStack works and why it works and what are the pain points. Because, I mean, OpenStack is still very immature. You can make it work, but you might want to work through the pain, you know, know where the landmines are that are in the code today and how to work around them. And the community part is where you see Facebook go and hire some of the top Postgres core developers, yeah. right? Since they, instead of relying on, on the consultants, let's go get the top contributors yes. and just let them come in here and say, you know what? You like working on OpenStack? Continue to work on OpenStack right yep. here. But from time to time, you might need some help yeah. kind of managing our thing, but the bulk of your time yeah. will be working on So they on might OpenStack. pay $150,000 a year to have that guy there, but he's still cheaper than one month's consulting from Big go, yeah. And if you do it right, this person may have the ability to rub off on other people and you start to groom the Knowledge rest of the sharing. community and you get to shape the projects so in a direction that work for you. To an extent. To an extent. Yeah, yeah. There's, a, there's, a, there's a double edged sword there. So, and the other thing too is to keep an I have this pet theory that everything we do in the public cloud, they're doing it at scale, right? And anything that you can do big, you can scale down small. 
what we see, you know, AWS has proven the concept to me of APIs to create software infrastructure. Can I now take that fundamental principle API to create software infrastructure and apply that in a private cloud? Well, two years ago I couldn't. vCloud Director wasn't very good and most people tried it and then gave up because it wasn't working. And it's, but the fundamental principle has been proven. So when I go and sit in front of a CIO and say, why don't you try to take some of those Amazon ideas and bring them into your data center? He goes, I will, because Amazon and Google proved it can be done. And at scale, whereas before the enterprise used to take, you know, small company, get a little bit bigger, then be in the mid-market, and they'd take five years in the mid-market to prove that their database was ready for the 1,000 to 5,000 seat, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then, then they became a big company, and 20 years later, they're Oracle, right? If you're saying that Amazon's got this massive infrastructure, well, why don't they just scale that down? I think and scaling down is actually the hard part, mainly because... They have the because like usually with automation in general, whether you're going to write an API that would be hit by a million people or just ten people, the complexity is almost the same to develop the same core set of APIs. And I think the APIs that Amazon has, it's a huge engineering feat. And unless they open source that substrate, yep. it, it doesn't. I mean, it may be able to run on smaller sets of gear. Yep. It may be able to run smaller sets of server. But the complexity to get there, I think OpenStack is finding this out, yep. that it is not easy just to copy. Uh, uh, upstream providers' APIs, especially when they're not on board to collaborate. Like, <laughs> Amazon is not like a collaborator <laughs> no. of OpenStack, right? It's like... It's a sync. You copy yeah. us, but... We you know, use open source, we don't contribute. Yeah, we don't, <laughs> give you, we don't give you a heads up that we're about to launch a new container servers or our own yeah. registry. It's like, you can see this later, mm. and then you get to try to follow us. So I think that's the hard part about scaling this down, yeah. that to do that work, and then your vendors aren't helping you. Like, you know, you go get this Juniper thing, you got this Cisco thing, you got this EMC thing. Where are the hooks? Yeah. Well, this brings it back to the competency statement, but I think I really like the ideal of scaling AWS down to the enterprise because that's a hard problem. That's a CS level, yeah. computer science, engineer level problem. So even if you're not going to, in the end, solve the problem ultimately, you know, it's one of those shoot for the stars and land up on the moon thing. In IT enterprise, if you shoot for that type of uh, objective mm. and the what you will learn in the process you'll know where you're at from a pecking order and knowledge piece if you have no desire to do that then you know what I, I, I'm going to indict you and say that you're probably that guy mm -hmm. that uh, that are that we would equate to a paper certified individual well, this okay, is why well, I'm loving the open source space my, my wine glass is getting very empty, so let's go for some last conversations and then let's get down to the party. So I, I think at the end of the day that now we're starting to see a lot of these open source projects in the infrastructure space, meaning mm -hmm. open source cluster managers when mm -hmm. traditionally we let the vendors handle managing applications at a larger yep. scale. Oh, yeah. I think yep. that tips the scale. So I don't think you have to copy Amazon anymore. I think you're now free to move to a different paradigm. But Sorry, my point is that Amazon's oh. proved that you can scale oh, correct. To, to GE-sized companies. So if you're a company at 500 or 1,000 or 5,000... Don't be afraid of this model. Don't be afraid of this model. Got it. That's my point, I think. Yeah, well, uh, but the principle's proven. The right. public cloud proves that private cloud can be done. How we get there is still an uh, uh, open question. Yeah, I'm not necessarily convinced that private cloud... I think ultimately private cloud will be successful because it'll always be cheaper than a public cloud. Because when you scale something down... It, there, there are some cost models here. Everybody says scaling a public cloud is going to be cheaper than building a private cloud. But I think that public clouds have a, there's a bunch of anti-patterns about. There's not enough power in the world to keep powering large-scale data centers. And the way that our power infrastructure is built is delivering a half a gigawatt to a specific location is actually very difficult. And I think they've picked up all, you know, and there's more like that, you know, like 
everything and so on. And I don't think that there's any incentive for them to drop their prices and stuff like that. But that's a podcast for another day. Please, Kelsey, tell people where they can find you on the internet. I'm Oh, I just use my real name for everything. So I'm Kelsey Hightower on Twitter. That's my main form of communication. Find me there. Perfect. And I'm at CTO Advisor on the Twitter, and you can find a blog, thectoadvisor.com. The and I'm Greg Farrow. You can find me on my blog at ethereummind.com and on the Twitter is at ethereummind. This has been the Packet Pushers podcast. As always, you can find show notes uh, and links to various things. Um, you can find, give us some feedback. Send us email at packetpushers at gmail.com. Leave a comment on today's podcast. And as always, remember that too much networking would never be enough. <laughs>